0: Pastor Mike Favara's with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll free at 888-320-5885. If you think about it, It is interesting how we as human beings can so easily be lulled into feeling secure. I think if everything goes well today, tomorrow, we start feeling like we got this. And yet, all of that security, if you think about it, really is an illusion. There are a million things that could go wrong, even right now, that could show you how defenseless and vulnerable and weak and ultimately powerless we are as human beings. And the Bible is constantly trying to remind us of that. I mean, in some ways, almost insultingly so. Like James 4 says, you're just like a, a mist, a vapor. You're like moisture. You're just, just, you're, it's, it's so insignificant and small compared to the realities that are so much bigger than us as human beings. The Old Testament in Isaiah 40, of course, you remember the words of us being like grass, all humanity, even the best of us, like, like grass of the field that the breeze just can sway and the sun can beat down on and it. Withers even the flower that looks so great it just it fades and it falls off and it's it's really nothing it just gets all collected and burned in the fire I mean that is uh, kind of insulting but it's very helpful for us to remember and sometimes circumstances help us remember that like Friday night when our Earth started shaking that reminds us how small and vulnerable we are I'm sure you felt that if you didn't feel that on Friday whatever you're doing on Friday nights needs to probably change. You need to do something else because you should have been able to be shaken into reality there that night that the earth that we're used to being so stable is something that can shake and move. And we start thinking, wow, I have no control over things. And that's not a bad place to be, to recognize that all the bluster, all the the, the bloviating, all the the hubris of humanity is, is just, it's just, it's nothing. It means nothing. Everything that we are is so small and so dependent. Obadiah was preaching to the Edomites, and they lived in the rocks. They built their house in the rocks. You've seen that on Indiana Jones, or you've maybe been to Petra in Jordan, ancient Edom, And, and they sat there thinking they were in an impenetrable fortress. And the way that Obadiah puts it, he says, in the pride of your heart, it has done nothing but deceive you. You feel so secure, and you say to yourselves in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And of course, There are things like earthquakes that make us realize how quick we could have everything be thrown down to the ground. I was uh, preaching, I've done it a a few times, a couple that I can remember where we've had earthquakes while I'm preaching. That's a helpful divine exclamation point on a sermon. And I thought I'd go back to the biggest one that I remember while I was preaching and the, the earth started shaking here in Southern California and the, the auditorium was creaking and I, I just remember that so vividly. So I thought it'd be fun to look back yesterday at what I was actually preaching on and what the outline was. And what was interesting, the first point, it was not the wording on the outline, but it was the, it was the first sub-point of the first point. It said, remember our vulnerability. I thought, well, how interesting that is that you know, I had planned that week to preach on on the smallness of us as human beings. And then I ended with a passage in First Chronicles where David is uh, setting his son up to build the temple and he prays. And I don't know, this was a long time ago, so I don't know if I would ever repeat these words, but the point at the end was consider the meganess of God. Hopefully my vocabulary has improved since then, but the meganess of God. God is just so big, he's so great, he's so strong. And, and so I looked the passage up that I had ended that, that message on in 1 Chronicles 29. And here's what David says, For yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And then I love this. In your hand are power and might. And it is in your hand to make great and to give strength. Because if you think about the vulnerability of human beings and how often we're just reminded in the Bible, you're not all that. You are small and so powerless and vulnerable. And yet in the scripture, we turn around, we find that we're supposed to be strong and courageous. I mean, that's almost as often as we see our vulnerability being expressed. Here we are commanded to be strong and be courageous, that the righteous are as bold as a lion, as I like to quote from, from Proverbs 28.1. Well, how can that be? Well, it can't be because of anything inherent in ourselves. And, and that's the real trick. The world wants to feel good and strong and invincible in themselves, which is nothing but an illusion. But Christians are the ones that are supposed to be really, truly strong and courageous and bold and fearless, without anxiety, without worry. And that strength cannot come from themselves. But as David said on a day that he was purposing to do something great and have his son build this amazing temple that would be a reflection of the glory of God in heaven, he says, God is the great one, God is the powerful one, and it is in his hand to grant strength. The subtitle of our message this morning is, The Lord is my strength. And I just grabbed that from the middle of this psalm. But this psalm, in the middle of the psalm, we see that the Lord is my strength. That is the trick. To have our sense of of strength, stability, Even our contentment and our sense of peace of mind, everything saying all of that cannot come from myself. It has to come through this connection to someone who is inestimably strong, someone who has infinite strength, someone who has power and greatness beyond anything, the most powerful. And if I can connect with him and feel secure in him, then you know what? I can have peace and I can have more than peace. I can have strength. I can have courage. I can have power. That's the mindset we need to get, and Psalm 118 is a great psalm to depict what that looks like and how to acquire it. I'd like you to leave here, unlike the world, who's reminded when their illusion goes away, when something shakes them into reality that they are are weak and small and vulnerable, for you to say, no, I am not weak, I'm not small, I'm not vulnerable, oh, I am in myself, but I'm not because I'm a child of the living God, and that changes everything. And that's what this passage really is all about. I'd like you to look at it. It's a long psalm, 29 verses. But as you see there in the middle of the psalm, look at verse 14. Here is the theme. For the Lord, of course you see capital O-R-D, so that's code for us to understand the Hebrew text is telling us the divine name, Yahweh. That translates to the divine name. Not Adonai, but Yahweh. Yahweh, God's proper name, is my strength. The Lord is my strength. There's the theme of all of this. Well, how is that so? Because of my connection to him. And my connection to him is immediately declared in the first four verses. Look look at the first four verses. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. Now, we've seen a lot of that in the Psalms in our study this spring and summer. But here comes the word we've encountered in almost every Psalm that i preached on. For his steadfast love, which is a strange translation, because you probably don't use the word steadfast very often. Steadfast, that the Hebrew word hesed we've talked about. The loyal, strong, tenacious love. Love that's not just a feeling. Matter of fact, in most cases, it's never defined as a feeling in the Bible. It's defined as a purposeful commitment, a kind of decision and purpose for the good of the object. In this case, us. God's steadfast, tenacious, strong covenant, promise-keeping, faithful love. And then he adds this phrase, it endures forever. We saw that in our last song. It Continues on. That's a strong statement, almost a redundant statement. Hesed is, is gonna endure. Well, of course, that's what Hesed is. It's a strong, covenant-keeping, tenacious kind of love. And of course, they're saying, that's about us. Now, three parties here. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord, and it might even be you from another country, you're from Edom even, but if you fear Yahweh, the real God that is, then you can say, His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love toward who? Toward us. Toward who? Toward Israel? Toward the house or the family of Aaron? And and toward any of those who fear the Lord? That I hope defines you. Because if it defines you, then you can say, I am the object and the recipient of the strong, steadfast love of God. It's as old as the first line you probably ever heard about God. That God loves you. But know this. We're talking here about a special kind of love. Does God love everyone? Well, you might go, wow, wait a minute, I've read a lot in the Bible about God hating people. Well, you're right, he does. God hates the wicked. Over and over in the Psalms, we see that God hates. Well, how can God love everyone? Well, he does love everyone. Matter of fact, Jesus taught about that. He said this, that God, he lets his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the crops of the just and the unjust. That is an act of love because love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment and a purpose for the well-being of other people. And for now, that's a very important phrase, for now, God's love extends over all of his creation. And he's being good, even to the unjust, even to the unrighteous. But that's not a feeling. If you want to talk about the disposition of God toward people that hate him, who are wicked, who are rebellious, who cast his words behind them, well, then there are words like hate in the Bible. And those are not mutually exclusive And what I'm saying is I want to be not a part of the people that God is displeased with but still committed to loving them during the present era. I want to be one that God not only provides for, I want him to be one who really loves me, who has a kind of covenant-keeping, I really love you. uh, You're mine, you're my people. And that's the first parameter, Israel. When you said in the Old Testament, I am of Israel, you had a sense that I'm of the covenant people of God. God has made a promise to us. As it's put in Deuteronomy, as Moses said, he has set his love upon us. He said, you are my favored people, and you belong to me. I've chosen you out from all the other nations. You're my people. And I hope you can sit here this morning and say, I'm a part of God's people. Today we call it the church. And it is something that God is doing in the present time where he is saying to this group, if you are my people, if you trust in my son... If you would see your sin for the problem that it is, and you come to Christ, you run to Him saying, "I need mercy from my sin, I don't want to be punished for my sin, and you trust in what Christ has lived for you and how He suffered for you, then you're a part of God's people. You immediately become a part of God's people, and you are loved. He sets His love on his people. Going to church doesn't make you his people. Singing songs and feeling feelings while you sing songs does not make you part of His people. You're part of His covenant people. You're part of his promised, tenacious love toward you if you've gotten to the place of genuine repentance and faith. And there's a lot of people. Have you ever been to our baptisms here? You people talk about their testimonies? Well, I thought I was saved and I wasn't saved. You know, I don't know anyone that I meet on the street that thinks they're at odds with God, right? 99% of them think I'm good with God. I'm good with God. Of course, everyone thinks they're right with God. That's our natural inclination to have that sense of delusion about the fact that surely God must like me because he's like me. He's like me, so he likes me. That's how people think. But in reality, we've got to come to the place where the Bible shows us our need to where we step in today, not being born of Abraham, but being born again, and saying, I want to be a child of God. I want to be in the people of God. And by the way, if you are and you've stepped across that line, you've seen your sin for what it is, you've called out to God in repentance, you've put your faith in Christ, then you are a priest, believe it or not. Here's what the Bible says you are a priest. In the Old Testament, they had the house of Aaron. Aaron was who? Sunday school grads. Who was Aaron historically? I know you don't like to talk to me in church, especially at 9 o'clock. But he was somebody's brother. Whose brother? Moses' brother. And he was the one who was chosen by God to be the head of the priestly clan. And the priestly family, or the house of Aaron, they had a special duty. And that duty was to put that tent up, called the tabernacle, later to become Solomon's temple. And they were to go in there and represent before God the people of Israel. God's going to be a covenant-keeping God, keeping his tenacious love set on Israel. But there were people that had a special relationship within that nation. One-twelfth of the nation could be now qualified to be priests, to go in before the presence of God and say, while they out there stand out there at a distance, I come close. And I come close to you in this relationship. And I now have access to you directly. I can walk into the temple complex. Or in that day, I can walk into the tents of the tabernacle. I can step into the inner sanctum of that. And and I can do that once a year very carefully after having that sacrifice made on my behalf. And I can be as though I'm in the living room of God. I can have that closeness with God. All that's blown out in the New Testament. No longer is there this gradiated mediation between an earthly priest and his people. The Bible says you now are the priests. We call it the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Every Christian in the New Testament Is represented to us as a priest. You have the access to God that the rest of the nation of Israel didn't have. Oh, they had his forgiveness, they had his favor, they had his love, but you had special access. The Bible says this draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That's a New Testament truth. In the Old Testament, he said, whoa, whoa, wait, don't pass this line, don't go into this court, certainly don't step into that tent, don't go into that inner tent. You got to do that only through the priesthood. You kind of got to ride in on the coattails of the priest. The Bible says Christ comes as the great high priest and says now you can all enter in. You're riding in on the coattails of the high priest and all of you now have access to the living God. And certainly one thing that characterizes that person who has access to God is the next thing. Verse 4, fear. They fear the Lord. And anyone could learn to fear the Lord, even in the Old Testament. It could be from another nation, another country. It could be a Philistine, and you could learn to fear the Lord and recognize that he is king. We've been reading in our DBR about Cornelius, this Italian who feared God, even though he wasn't part of the covenant people of God. Well, if you are part of the covenant people of God in the New Testament, and you step into this relationship with God, and you have direct access to that God, one thing that characterizes that is, is fear. In First John chapter 4, it speaks of making sure that we are in the love of God, that we know that we love God, and you should look for evidence in your life like you're loving your brother, like you're seeing your striving, because it's gonna be striving, to keep his commandments. Not gonna be a burden, but it's gonna be a fight with your flesh. And then you're gonna understand this. It says in chapter five, you're gonna realize that perfect love casts out all fear. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said supposed to fear God. You are, fear God. The next verse says, because that kind of fear that I'm talking about John says, is a fear that involves condemnation or judgment. And the judgment that we have to face is the judgment of accountability, not the judgment of condemnation. There's no condemnation for us. This has been a repeated theme in our Psalms. We've tried to remember the fact that we have a great high fear of God because of our view of God being so big, so large. He has a consuming fire, the New Testament says, and we ought to approach him with that fear, that reverence, phobos, that sense of being uncomfortable with the greatness and majesty of God. And you draw near to that God, you have that sense of uneasiness because we still recognize even in the state of our acceptance before God in Christ to speak in New Testament terms, we still recognize the majesty and the power and the greatness of God. And as Peter put it, think about it, because he was closely associated with a God-man, Jesus Christ, in the inner circle, he said this, you need to understand You're calling on Father, one who impartially judges each man's work, therefore live your life in fear during your time here on earth. And that means that we have a great respect and a deep, abiding, cognizant sense of awareness that God is a God whose eyes are keeping watch on the evil and the good, and we recognize that. Well, that seems like I'm gonna be uneasy about it. Well, all that to say that if you are one who fears God, you're one who has access to God, you're one that's part of the covenant people of God, you ought to say, his hesed endures forever. He loves me. Now, with all that said, that seems like a lot of qualification for this point, but let's write it down finally. Number one, you need to be secure in that. Even though there's fear, even though there's a sense of privilege that you have that comes on the coattails of Christ, we are secure, number one, because God loves us. And he's made that promise and commitment to you. And there's nothing that can reverse that. The Bible says you come to him, he will not cast you out. I'm quoting John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me, they come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I will embrace you as my people. Have access to me. You'll have that sense of fear with one that you should see as your judge but instead of your judge he becomes your advocate think about that remember probably one of the best passages about the love of God in Romans chapter 8 it reminds us if God is for us who can be against us the one who should righteously say you're unacceptable to me you should be cast out has now stepped out from the judge's booth if you will from the tribunal and come down and taken upon himself the penalty that you deserve And now he's become your advocate. The judge, jury, and executioner has now become your attorney defending you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's the one that can condemn? Romans 8 says. Oh, it's Christ Jesus, but he's the one who now has died for us. He died for us and he rose again and he stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And that's the great passage about the love of God because then it goes on to say, what can separate us from that kind of love? Can anything? Anything? Let me just read some of the words in this passage. Can life, death, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in creation? No, nothing can separate us from that kind of love. Number one, there is something that strengthens people who should have no inherent strength, who can look at a God who's done everything to make their relationship real, to make it close to drive us to a place of full acceptance because of what Christ has done. And now he says, you're mine. You're my people. You're my priests. You fear me and I love you. That's a kind of security that nothing else in this world can provide. Verse five goes on to say something we've had so much experience with this spring and summer. Hey, I've got a track record. Out of my distress, I called on Yahweh and Yahweh answered me. And he set me free. Yahweh's on my side, I will not fear what man can do to me. Yahweh's on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. He looks back now. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. I won. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of, of Yahweh, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. There's an image. And yet they went out like a fire among thorns. It's like putting an old dried out tumbleweed in in a campfire. It just burns up so quickly. It's gone. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. I won the battles. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but Yahweh helped me. Verses 5 through 13 is about recalling the help of God. And the whole point is, I'm not going to be afraid now. If God is on my side, present tense, verse 6, I will not fear. I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to think about something that man can do to me and freak out about it. I may be vulnerable. I could have a lot of people surrounding me, nations all around me. Verse 11, surrounding me on every side. Verse 12, like bees. And I know this, I have God as my helper. Number two in your outline, you want to talk about courage, fearlessness. The Scripture says we ought to be because God is our helper. Here's something about being a Christian. The Bible says that if you are a Christian, Romans chapter 8, You are given the spirit of God. If you don't have the spirit of God dwelling within you, then you're not his son. If you're his son, his covenant people, you have then God's spirit within you. The spirit has been given this name by Christ in this upper room. Just before he went to be betrayed and in the garden and then off to the cross, he said, I'm going to send the, here's the Greek word, parakletos, the parakletos, translated the helper or the comforter. Someone who comes in, para, next to Kaleo, to call in. I'm calling in someone to be there for you. And I'm going to be with you in the person of the Spirit. The third person of the Godhead, the second person of the Godhead, says this. I'm going to go, go back to the Father. You're going to go be my, my witnesses here. You're going to go make disciples. You're going to baptize. You're going to teach them. But remember this. I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. The constant reminder in Scripture is that God is our helper. Whatever you face, you don't face it alone. The Bible is so clear. The Lord is your strength, a kind of courageous, fearless strength, because God promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. That's something we need to think about more clearly than we have in the past. Joshua, you can imagine, being in the shadow of such a great leader as Moses, certainly had, I'm sure, some self-doubt about leading the people. He'd watched so much happen, including going into the promised land and having the people say, we're not going to believe you, we're going to believe our own gut, and the fickleness and complaining and the criticism of the people. Now he's been given the mantle of leadership. And in Joshua chapter 1, God comes on the scene and says to Joshua, listen, I am going to be with you, and therefore be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Now, did that mean that everything that that Joshua ever did succeeded? Well, he said, I'm going to give you success. Yeah, but here's the thing. He didn't have success in every battle. Matter of fact, we don't get out of the first five chapters without seeing a great defeat, a big defeat. He doesn't win every battle. But God says you're going to win the war. And when it comes down to what I've called you to do, you're going to accomplish everything I've called you to do. So here's the thing you need to have. Your disposition needs to be courage. Be strong and courageous. He says it over and over, from verses 5 to verse 9, over and over again. In verse 9, he says, haven't I commanded you this? Just be strong, be courageous, don't be frightened, do not be dismayed. Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. You know, that is ultimately the solution. That the God who's all-knowing, all-seeing, who is your Father and your impartial judge, has sent His Spirit to live within you, to move you, to convict you, to guide you, to direct you. And all of that, the Bible says, is something that should give you a great sense of courage. There should be no fear in your life. There should be no anxiety, no worry. And every time there's someone who struggles with that, God's response, it seems to be, to those that God is promising, I'm going to accomplish my will in your life, is I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Jacob. Think about Jacob, mama's boy, right? You'd rather hang out with Esau than Jacob, I'm sure. And Jacob there, in the midst of all of that, fearful, frustrated. God comes on the scene and says, listen, just remember this. I am with you. I'll be with you. Just don't be afraid. And the guy that's the wimpy twin ends up being the great leader, the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. No, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, Joshua in the shadow of Moses. It's okay. Don't worry. I'll be with you. Gideon, from the smallest tribe, from the weakest tribe, from the weakest family of the smallest tribe. God says, that Midianite army, don't worry about it. I will be with you. To a stammering Moses who said, I can't speak well. I don't have, the, I don't have what it takes. I will be with you. To Jeremiah, probably a teenager at the time, some adolescent kid who's being called to preach, preach to the crowds and tell them stuff they don't want to hear. And he's saying, God, I can't do it. I'm too young. He says, I'll be with you. To Solomon, who realizes to follow in his dad's footsteps is in a huge undertaking to lead the people. He says, I'm inexperienced, I don't have what it takes, I need wisdom. He says, Don't worry, I will be with you. Peter, stumbling through his own sin, who had been told, I will never leave you, never forsake you, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age, has to be reminded in his own grief, in his own sorrow, his own regret. Listen, I'll be with you. Here I am. Get out there and do it. Do you love me? Clearly, I've expressed my love to you. I've shown you, as it says in John, the full extent of my love. Don't be afraid. I'll be with you. When I say the word Ebenezer, you probably think of Dickens and uh, Scrooge. I think I brought this up not long ago. In 1 Samuel 7, maybe I didn't give you the whole story, but the Ebenezer, it's a compound word in Hebrew, Eben means stone or building, monument. Nezer of help. The stone that reminds us that God has helped us. They build this big pile of rocks and Samuel says, remember this, Ebenezer. God, and I love what he says, God has helped us thus far. I know I've said this throughout the series, but if you don't spend time chronicling that and remembering how God has helped you, you're going to be afraid about what may happen tomorrow. You've got to say, God has helped us thus far. And the whole story is this, that Ebenezer, if you look that up in your Bible dictionary, going to take you back a number of chapters where earlier in the book, it became a city where there was a great defeat and Israel had been defeated. Much like God said to Joshua, I'll give you success, but you don't turn from the law to the left or the right. All of this was self-inflicted. Well, it was self-inflicted certainly when they tried to bring the, the, the ark into battle, which they shouldn't have done like a big rabbit's foot on poles. It wasn't what God intended at all. And they had a great defeat at Ebenezer. Well, Samuel's really smart. And now he says, sometime later, as he piles up the stones, and he's about to go into battle, and he's thinking of the victories they need to win, he says, remember, the Lord has helped us thus far. And he called it Ebenezer, because that means the stone of help, the monument of help, God has helped us. It's a good thing for us to remember, especially when we've had failures, especially when we feel like things aren't going the way we'd expect them to. God has certainly promised to be with us, and he's proved it in the past, and some of us aren't good at keeping track of those things, but we ought to. As I said even last week, we are to chronicle, remember the deeds of the Lord, so much so that you can have a future of courage. Please don't underestimate that. If you have fear in your life, anxiety in your life, I'm not here to shame you for that, but that has no place in the Christian life. The wicked flee when no one pursues them. They're skittish, they're afraid. I mean, earthquakes really shake them up, literally and figuratively. But for Christians, we are not. We're supposed to be as bold as lions, the picture of the king of the jungle. How is that? Because we're strong inherently? We think we're all that? We have the bluster and hubris of the rest of the world? No, because the Lord is our strength. Why? I know this. Two things so far. God loves us, and God promises to be with us. You combine those two things, you got a lot already. But there's more. Look at verses 14 through 18. He says, remember this. Not only my strength, but you are also my my song. And you've become my salvation. I just see you as my salvation. You are the one I hope in and trust in so much so I have such confidence about the future, I can sing about it. Matter of fact, I can be out camping there as a soldier, ready to go into battle, but I can sing at night, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous, because here's what I think, the right hand, which is the hand you fight with, you put your sword in, the right hand of Yahweh has done, now here's a strange word, valiantly, what? You're talking about my strength, Yeah, I'm strong in my disposition because my connection is with the strong one, and that strong one has fought for us, and he's done bravely, courageously, valiantly. The right hand of God exalts. He raises that sword. His right hand does valiantly. He's the brave and courageous fighter. I shall not die. I shall live. I shall recount the deeds of Yahweh. Yahweh has disciplined me severely, and certainly he had in Israel. And he certainly did in David's life. Not saying this is a Davidic psalm, but I'm saying certainly they knew that, the ups and downs of all this. But he's not given me over to death. The macro storyline of all this, at least in Israel, I guess not macro with a capital M. And many recommend that this is actually a psalm that was used and maybe even written in the post exilic period. Remember, they went into Babylonian captivity in 586, and they're coming out of it 70 years later. And they're coming into that time of having the walls rebuilt and having the temple foundation laid by Ezra. And they're having all this of Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and they're rebuilding everything. And they've come out of the, the doghouse, so to speak. They've been in God's discipline, but God had not cast them off. And if you look at all the promises going into the exile and all the... Prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel, they're all about hope. Don't worry. God is going to restore us. God may have disciplined you severely, but God fights for you, and God pulls you through this. Now, again, so many of these psalms look at things in terms of warfare, and that's what's gone on. In this ancient culture, there's a lot of that. Not that there's not warfare today. There certainly is. But we read this as God's covenant people in the New Testament, and we know this, that the real battle... The real salvation that we need to celebrate as God's most important victory is the one that you and I are facing when it's not a tank or a jet or a missile that's assaulting us, but it's really the effect of our own sin. Here's the problem the real problem is the fact that you and I are guilty. We're guilty before God, and what we deserve is judgment and justice. And when the Bible talks about the fact that God came in to fight a battle for us, he did He did it himself by invading time and space so that he could take on the problem himself and solve it so that when we face the end of this life, our own demise, death, death wouldn't have sting and death wouldn't have victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It's gone. Why? Because the power of death is in the law. And what's the law? Wages of sin is death. And death, not just the fact that you die biologically, but you die relationally, and you get cast out of the presence of God, and you suffer because you're a sinner. Well, all of that equation gets reversed. The law of sin and death has been reversed by the law of spirit and life, to put it in Paul's terms in Romans. And that means that God went and fought a battle for us to give us salvation with a capital S, so to speak, and he's fought for us. That is a huge thing, that according to this passage should give us, give us joy. There ought to be rejoicing. There ought to be glad songs. And as we think from a New Testament perspective about the ultimate valiant right hand raising up and exalting of God fighting for us, the fighting that took place was the fighting that took place in the ministry of Christ, in his earthly ministry, his death, and in the resurrection of Christ. Colossians puts it this way. There are a lot of things hostile against us. And it's not the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Romans. It's the fact that ultimately my problem is my sins assail me, to put it in the words of Martin Luther in his great old hymn. My sins are coming at me. They're hostile against me. Every transgression has a penalty, and it's aimed at me, and I should suffer the problem, the justice of all that. But God steps in. And he becomes that mighty fortress, that fighter, that man of war. And he ends up fighting the battle for us and taking on the penalty of all of that, absorbing all of the justice that we deserve. Number three on your outline, if you're taking notes, that ought to make us joyful. We ought to be joyful because the Lord has fought for us. God has fought a battle for us. He's invaded time and space. The one who has the power of death, it says in Hebrews, right, is the enemy. And he's held us captive. He's enslaved us. I don't don't read many books like this, but I couldn't help but read Jessica Buchanan's autobiography of her time as a hostage for three months in Somalia, this American gal, 27 years old. And she gets hauled into this Somali camp and you can imagine, I don't know, if you just go online, certainly they've made movies of all the stuff that went on there, Black Hawk Down and stuff like that you you may have seen, but Jessica gets gets, uh, kidnapped. She's a hostage and she ends up being abused and all the terrible things that happened to her and the navy sends in seal team six 24 guys come in drop in, in in the middle of pre-dawn raid they end up killing nine of their captors and getting jessica and and every single one of them the 24 plus jessica 25 they they airlift out and they they, they leave they, they grab her can you imagine what that must have been like that sense of victory. I mean, it's like the the, the Calvary's here. They're, they're like riding on white horses. Here come these the, the, the thudding of the of the helicopters to bring in these American soldiers to save this this gal who's a, who's a hostage. And that picture of riding back on on that chopper coming back to safety. I don't care how bruised you are. I don't care how frustrated you are, how emaciated you are, how hungry you are. I mean, at that moment you are rejoicing at the fact. That here these, these seals had come in and, and accomplished your victory. I mean, that passage, I, I talk about it. The, the ones that are enslaved by the enemy of fear of death. That when you die, you're going to have to face the fact that you've got a holy God that you don't measure up to. The Bible says because the children, the hostages that he wanted to save had flesh and blood, he likewise had to take on flesh and blood to come and and redeem us, to partake of those same things so that through death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's called redemption, buying us out of that enslaving fear. And a fear, by the way, that's not an illusion. I know a lot of people say they don't fear death. Most of us do. Most non-Christians certainly do when it comes time to die. But it's a legitimate fear. Matter of fact, it's not even legitimate enough. It, it needs to be heightened. And for us, we sit here and say, as Paul did, we no longer have that fear of death. You may fear pain, but you don't fear death. If you're a real Christian because you are loved by God, God is with you, and now as you cross from the threshold of this life into the next life, you know this, he has fought the battle for me. And that's worth celebrating. I know that's not the kinds of songs we like to sing. We like to sing songs about God who loves us and cares for us like kittens and rainbows and butterflies and he gives us nice things and we have a nice family and our kids are healthy and they go to good schools. That is not the kinds of singing that are characterized in scripture. Oh, there are scriptural songs of singing of temporal blessings, but it's not about those blessings that the Bible's most concerned. The first song of the Bible and the last song of the Bible, do you know what they're about? God being a man of war, God being a victor in battle. It starts with the redemption of being freed from the slavery of Egypt. And it says there in Exodus, as Moses sings this song, the first recorded song of the Bible, and it starts this way, God is a man of war. What has he done? He's gone into Egypt, he's broken the yoke and the strength of Pharaoh, and he's brought his people out of there. Joy and gladness. If you don't have joy and gladness at the fact that you're redeemed from the enemy's clutches to be freed from the enemy. And you didn't understand the problem. You're like that bank heist back in late 70s in Sweden where those four bank workers were taken hostage. And for days they were there with this bank robber as he holed up in this bank. And sure enough, it didn't take but a couple of days until those hostages became very sympathetic toward their captor. Matter of fact, it was mind-boggling that the police were now having to deal with the hostages as though they were co-conspirators in the crime. And they actually started begging the police to be careful and not hurt their captor. I mean, this was so bizarre. Matter of fact, that scene there in the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, became phrase in the lingua franca of our everyday parlance, the things that we say. We talk about this in our day. Maybe you've heard of the Stockholm syndrome. Well, that's the picture of someone who should be recognizing this captor has a gun against your head he does not like you he's here for his own purposes and yet they become very sympathetic toward him they start parroting the things that he says do you understand the world is so messed up at this particular point in american history we have people that are actually defending the one who wants nothing more than to destroy them the liar the father of lies you hear people now that, that Satan has no concern for other than to destroy them. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and yet they're there parroting with pride, defending the lies of the enemy in our culture. Do you ever think of it that way? I, I know we're repulsed, and we rightly should be, about people that are brazen in their sin and rebellion against God and his law. I understand that. I mean, but you've got to see this as the Stockholm Syndrome. You are so blinded by the problem. You've become a defender of of the enemy. And yet by God's grace I hope most of you sit here today as people who fear the Lord, who have access to the Father, who are part of the covenant people. And you say God loves me and has delivered me from that his strong arm has done valiantly. His right hand has been exalted. And while I may have been disciplined by that hand, I have not been given over to death. When they recognize that coming out of the exile, Nehemiah had to deal with the people as did Ezra. Ezra actually describes it in Nehemiah 8. Stands up and tells the people, listen, I know you feel really bad about all that just happened. You feel bad about how you got yourself into the mess and how you rightly deserve the punishment of the exile, but stop crying. You need to be joyful that God has redeemed you, that he's not given you over to death, that Israel survives and that you've survived. And that great line that you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. you Remember that line? That comes from Ezra the scribe standing up and telling these people, you have to purpose to rejoice in your redemption. He says that. Stop mourning, stop weeping, stop crying, stop grieving. He says, look, get food, get get wine, get together, send portions to each other, send gifts to each other, celebrate what God has done. Stop grieving about what you were. Stop looking back in the rearview mirror of your life get over the fact that God has taken your sin and appended it to the cross and that all that should destroy you now has been wiped away, removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Stop grieving and don't sit there looking your wounds in the chopper as we're headed to the kingdom. Jessica had a lot to complain about. She didn't feel real good, but she was saved. That's worth rejoicing even if you're living in a tent. I love that. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. I don't want to live in a tent. I'd like a permanent home. I'd like to come into the city, the fortress of Jerusalem. Well, that's where this psalm ends, verses 19 through 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter. Forget the tents. Forget the warfare, the battle out there. I want to go to the, reside in the the city, the capital. That I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh and the righteous shall enter. No longer in, in tents. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. Matter of fact, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Does that sound familiar? Who does that apply to in the New Testament? To Christ? Who does it apply to here? Well, it could be it could be several things and commentators are split on this but originally it could be the individual i was counted off as nothing i was written off as dead i was surrounded like bees i was surrounded by the nations they thought they had counted me out and now i'm being favored and given a place in the city and i'm now saved or it could be the nation some people think this psalm as i said was actually written by Nehemiah and Nehemiah was saying listen we were down and out people thought as we hung our harps on the on the tree branches across Babylonian Valley that we were done, but we're not done. Now we're back. We've rebuilt the city. We got gates to walk through again. We had all the critics, all the sandballets, all the Tobias. We did in 52 days what no one thought we could ever do, and that is we rebuilt these walls. Ezra's already laid the foundation for the temple. The temple's being restored. Guys, let the joy of the Lord be your strength, because now you enter in to the permanent home. Of course, the ultimate stone That was rejected was Christ himself. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our sight what God has done. This is the day Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Does this start to sound like, oh man, this is, I can't get the New Testament out of my mind here. Why? Because as we think about going through gates, sounds a lot like Psalm 24 that we were studying earlier in our series. It sounds like this is the hosannas of, of, of David coming in on Palm Sunday. Well, in fact, he did. And he presented himself through the gates and they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he was coming through the gates. Remember that song, lift up your heads, O gates. And the king of glory is going to come through. And here were these prophetic pictures of the triumphal entry of Christ. And so it is. But what happens when he goes through the gates? Well, verse 22, he gets rejected. They conspire against him. They spend all week trying to plot to kill him. And by the end of the week, they end up succeeding in killing him. They kill him. Yeah, they do kill him. But the good news is the recipients of that Though they lived in darkness, the light has dawned on them. Verse 27, Yahweh is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. And it's much like the sacrifice that cleanses our guilt, that removes our sin. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is kind of a cryptic section to figure out. But I know this. That picture of saying we were counted as out And in our case, the valiant warrior, Christ himself, the man of war who's come and defeated this problem of sin, he's come through the gates, he's presented himself, he was rejected, but now he's the keystone, the cornerstone, the capstone of this thing. Let me put it this way. Christ came through the gates of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, so that you one day can, as a victor, come through the gates of the new Jerusalem, have the light of God, his favor, shine upon you, Because the sacrifice has been offered, fully acceptable. As it says in Isaiah 53, everything that the Father required, it was all satisfied in the Son. He was the Lamb. These are great New Testament pictures. That's a kind of confidence, a kind of courage, a kind of joy, a kind of assurance and security that should make everyone in this room look at any circumstance and say, it doesn't matter what happened. Come life or death, as they say, hell or high water, it doesn't matter. I know where I'm going. Number four, be confident, because Christ is coming. He's coming again, and He will say to you the very thing that this passage says, and that is, enter in, come in, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I didn't read the whole passage. Let me read it for you. Enter in, you blessed of my Father, the sh- the shining light of the favor of God shining. How come? Because it's the Lamb of God. You've been clothed in these white robes because all of your sin has been removed I can't help it let me turn you to the end of the book Revelation go to Revelation chapter 22 with me here is the ultimate hope of the Christian life is that you will enter into an eternal home there's no crying, no weeping, no mourning, no tears look for instance at verse 14 and we're nearing the end of the whole picture here of the eternal state Talk about that great line from Matthew 25, blessed of my father, enter in. Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Look at verse 14, Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. How do they wash their robes? In the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb, so that they may have right to the tree of life, this thing we were barred from and excluded from. And I love this, underline it, that they may enter the city by the gates, the new Jerusalem, Oh, they came into Nehemiah's gates. And certainly Jesus entered through the gates that Herod had rebuilt. And we may get through a jam in our lives, some kind of crisis and say, hey, we're walking through the threshold of our house alive and well, we've gotten through that crisis. But this is when it's all gonna be over. When you're gonna be blessed. Matter of fact, go back up to chapter 21. Look across the page, twenty-one, twenty-three. Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamb, there's the one that was slain, the festal sacrifice is its lamp. And by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I love this. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. You want the themes of what we see in Psalm 118? The stone that the builder rejected becomes the cornerstone, the light-giving favor of God is dispensed through the prism of Christ and here comes the people who can enter into their eternal home, blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a vindication in a world that mocks us because we believe the truth of God, because we don't have Stockholm syndrome, we're not parroting the lies of the enemy that wants to destroy us, We're maligned. God is blasphemed. The truth is continually mocked. But Christ is coming back. And if you believe the truth of God's word, that ought to bring you a great sense of confidence and joy. It ought to make you courageous. It ought to make you, if everyone in the world turns against you, it does not matter. If the world tomorrow falls apart, if there are wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence and earthquakes, it doesn't matter. I'm secure, I'm courageous, I'm joyful, and I'm confident. Why? Because God loves me. He helps me. He saved me by fighting for me on a cross. And he's coming back. It doesn't get much better than that. I've quoted it many times, but in 1 Chronicles 16, that comparison is made about the gods of the people. A lot of people have a lot of priorities this morning. That's why they're not in church. They're out doing their thing. They love their stuff. But the Bible says they're all worthless. In the end, they're worthless. It's God, the real God, who made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are his, and I love these two words. Strength and joy are in his place. I hope that's true for you. I hope you recognize that. To be strong and courageous, joyful and glad, secure, and reveling in our redemption. This week was helpful, I suppose, in that regard. I mean, you can be a adrenaline junkie that just likes strange things to happen, but if you think about our vulnerability, think about the things that can happen and will happen. I hope you echo in your own heart the truth of Psalm one twelve. I love these verses, verses six through eight. The righteous never going to be moved. Why? Because God remembers us. His love is upon us. We're not afraid of bad news. doesn't matter. Our heart is firm. We trust in the Lord. Our heart is steady. We will not be afraid. I don't want to add to your fear that maybe you feel like you have more fear than you should. But I do want to encourage you this morning to find great strength in the Lord. The Lord is your strength if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, today's the day. Get it right with God. See your sin for what it is. Put your trust in the living God Abhor it. I love that line from J.C. Ryle. Here's the idea. The whole act of regeneration is you, by God's grace, hating what you loved and loving what you hated. See your sin for what it is, the thing that you so adored, and let it go. Learn to despise the things that hung Christ on a cross and the things that we ran from, the law of God, the truth of God, The commandments of God, even the presence of God, we learn to love. Great need in this world to see people like Jesus who in the midst of a storm can lay down in the hull of the boat and fall asleep. And they see our peace that transcends all understanding. That's a lot of psalm to deal with in one sermon, but I'd love for you to go back through it this week. Even if you don't have small groups this week, please go through the questions on the back of the worksheet. Spend time working through those prayerfully. Let's see if we can't live this out to the glory of God this week. Let's pray. God, make us secure, courageous, joyful, and confident because we have a relationship. We have daily support. We have a salvation that's been secured by the strong right hand of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son. And there's a coming vindication because one day we'll enter through the gates and we'll hear, enter in, come in, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God, if we're feeling guilty this morning, let us confess our sins. Feeling grief-stricken or tired or fatigued. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength as we look at the important things, the right things, the eternal things. I pray you lift up our spirits, fill our fuel tanks. Get us charged up to face this world without fear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.